0: from One World Trade Center in Manhattan overlooking dozens of golf courses that will never have us as members this is the Golf Digest podcast welcome to the Golf Digest podcast this is Sam Wyman our guest today is golf super agent chubby chandler who's easily the most successful golf agent in Europe and might well be in the world his stable of clients includes Lee Westwood, European Ryder Cup captain Darren Clark, master champion Danny Willett. He had nine players total in the field in the Rio Olympics. And he joined me today to talk about the state of the game, his impressions of golf's return to the Olympics after 112 years, and his feelings on the future of the European Tour. Chubby, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Let's start with the Olympics, since we're two days removed from a pretty dramatic conclusion to the tournament. Uh, None of your players won, but they certainly factored in. You had nine guys there. I'm just curious, overall, your impressions of golf return to the games.
1: I was really happy the way it turned out you know it was obviously a long road to get there. Uh, I think starting in 2008 uh, I can remember Ty Voter lobbying a lot of people then and I know the opinions were very mixed uh, whether it should be whether it should have been amateurs whether it should have been pros Uh, and I in fact uh, remember spending a Friday evening when The 2008 Olympics were opening and we were in the same bar we celebrated the 2004 Ryder Cup win in Oakland Hills a little Irish bar and myself Westwood and Clark had had one or two ales and they were against it and I was very much for it and they said no no it should be amateurs and I just caught on one of the big TVs above where we were drinking I just caught the flag, you know, guys going around with the flags, and I saw. Oh, I said, I must have this all wrong. Roger Federer is there with Switzerland's flag, oh, and there's Rafa Nadal with Spain's, and oh, and isn't that uh, Kobe Bryant there in the American team? And I was just playing fun with them because they, you know, they were dead set against pros being there. So it was a long road, and when people started withdrawing, and the Zika virus, and the course not being ready, you, you fear that it's going to be a a complete mess, and for it to turn round like it did and have such an unbelievably gracious and good winner, uh, who probably did golf as much good on Sunday afternoon as anybody's done for quite a number of years. Uh, I thought it, not just his golf was great, but his speaking afterwards was just tremendous. I thought Justin was great. I thought Henrik was great, and I thought Matt Kuchar got it right. You know they, they all embraced it. and We had nine golfers there. You know, they the the day the the qualifying finished, my WhatsApp went crazy with golfers saying, "I'm off to Rio." With different flags, you know, because we had New Zealand, Norway, Italy, France, Holland, uh, Korea, and they were all just so happy to be there. So to the, to see it sort of unfold on Sunday afternoon and the end of it, and and then the crowds were different, weren't they? You know, I thought the crowds were very different. And I, I was just really happy for the people that put a lot of time in and, and said this is to grow the game and this is you know sort of what it's all about. That I think it's, it's probably going to do it.
0: So you know a lot was made that the guys weren't paid. And but from a from a from a financial perspective, you, your counterpart Mark Steinberg had made remarks about how uh, Rose and Kuchar's showings there opened up a lot of doors or could open up a lot of doors for them. So what are the opportunities provided a golfer just because they're exposed to this wider audience presumably that Olympics provide.
1: Yeah, I think uh, one of one of the telling points is that I already know at the HSBC Champions in Shanghai that every Olympic golfer will get announced on the tee as an Olympic athlete. That shows what it's like in China. And and I also know we're heavily involved in Turkey, in Turkish golf, Turkish Open and whatever. And they were desperate to even sign somebody that would change nationality to represent Turkey. You know, there was there was a sign in Omfi and they were going to play for Turkey in the World Cup. But da, da, da. So, you know, I had a pretty good idea of what it meant to some of these smaller nations. And I think Mark Steinberg right. I think it opens up an unbelievable um, avenue for the guys um, I don't say to exploit, because I I think probably Rose has probably done himself far more good than he did when he won the US Open. I think he will become a much higher profile brand person, whatever you want to call it. So it will open up opportunities, but it's just the whole fact that they all went there because they wanted to be there. They competed. They competed hard with no prize money, and and I think it was just a massive success.
0: So from, you know, where we sit, um, this is a great story. It's sort of a great revelation for golf, and it comes on the heels of some not great news in the golf marketplace. One being like the Nike golf dissolution um, is been a sort of a sobering development. So from your perspective, because you live this every day, what's the state of the, the golf economy for, for, your, for your clients?
1: Well, it's interesting, isn't it, what you say about Nike, because I've never seen anybody buy a set of Nike golf clubs, you know, in 10 years. So, for me, to what they've done, it's always been a brand play. It's not been a golf hardware play. So, they probably have done what they should have done f- right. five years later than they should have done it. Right. You know, to have Nike branding all over Tiger Woods and Rory McElroy and one or two others is a really, really good advertising banner. But, but, to actually try and get into the golf ball market when titleists are so strong there, it was just it was a very strange move and whether they thought on the back of tiger that it was just an easy play or not, I don't know i think I think the golfing public's a bit smarter than that, and I think that they look around for value, they look around for playability, et cetera, et cetera so I don't think it's such a bad deal that, that they've pulled out, and I think that. One or two, the golf manufacturers—they tend to cut each other's throats, don't they? I mean, you know, the 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 money they must spend on R and D. If they could get together and say, "Listen, let's 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 get this, let's get sensible and only bring out one new model a year or one new model every two years," because that's what seems to suck all the money out of what they're doing, and then that puts all the prices up, and then of course, then three months later, all the prices come down because another model. So it just needs some sensible sort of togetherness if you like for the golf industry not to keep cutting each other's throat
0: does it take any opportunities away from players or if there's one less player uh when when one of your players has an equipment deal come up when there's one less company that's bidding for bidding for them how does that play you're smiling you haven't
1: done your research (laughs) my guys don't change contracts if you have a look at it most of us lee west has been with pink since 1993 and you know, Danny Willett's going to be with Callaway forever, and Dan's been with TaylorMade So we tend, we tend not to chop and change anyway. Um, we get to the numbers we need to get to by being loyal, if you like. Um, and I think the way ty- the, the Nike deal is, that it seems like it's going to carry on. It just means that Rory has the flexibility to use probably a tight list yeah. golf ball. And whatever equipment he wants in the bag, because he's still going to be Nike head to toe. So I think I don't think it'll make an awful lot of difference. There will still be Nike deals out there.
0: It's interesting. You mentioned Danny Willett um, in reference to being with Callaway, obviously a big year for him winning the Masters. So talk to me a little bit. We, we always ask players, how's your life going to change when you win a major? How does uh, his life change from the perspective of his agent? When a when a win like that happens,
1: and he's had a double change because he had a baby twelve days before it as well. And I think the 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 double change has been really difficult for him. You know, he's tried to take his family to the U.S. Open, the U.S. PGA. Uh, he didn't at the Open. Um, I think he was on yeah he was on his own at the Open. But I think the two changes have been really difficult for him. And he's also in a funny sort of way he's taken all the opportunities that came to him, not financial ones. Mm-hmm experienced ones he'd been to Wimbledon he's been to the British Grand Prix he went he threw the first pitch out at the Yankees all that stuff he's done because you know you only get that opportunity you know once in a lifetime maybe some of the financial opportunities he gets come up in the winter but even those aren't his schedule's unchanged Mm -hmm. one tournament from from when he won it to what we had already uh so I think it's going to take him probably till the winter to actually really come to terms with it and be able to focus on what he was doing best, which is training and playing golf. But but he'll
0: get there. Yeah, you mentioned like taking advantage of experiences. You've been down the road a bunch with a bunch of different players. So when these opportunities arise, now again he's he's a little unique because he had a baby as well. Are you? Do you say you know pace yourself? Don't jump at everything, or do you say? You're only on your first major once. You might as well enjoy every part of it.
1: Yeah, you try and get a balance, and we've we've definitely done that. You know, he, he actually played uh, the BMW in Germany as an extra tournament, but that was because his his schedule around them was a bit sketchy, and they came up with a bit of an offer to do some promo work there, um, and he took that. And then he's going to play Hong Kong at the end of the year because he's never been to Hong Kong, um, not for about four years. And I think the wife wants to go do a bit of Christmas shopping, mm-hmm. and there was a nice offer. And they're the only changes he's had since uh, he won the Masters.
0: So I know uh, you were just recently with Darren Clark, longtime client, uh, in the Bahamas. So obviously, the big, uh, the big thing coming up is the Ryder Cup. So clearly, I imagine you're you're, you're very much. Uh, squarely with with Darren and hoping the Europeans win. However, does a part of you feel like the event would benefit from a closer contest or even an American win? Uh,
1: I think it will be a close contest, whatever. Whatever happens, I think that um, if you have a look at the makeup of the two teams, the two, two captains actually have completely opposite problems. Davis has a load of picks that are all very experienced and all have massive losing records. And we have a team of rookies that have never played before. So we'll have to pick some experience. Davis, looking at it, he might pick all these experienced guys or he may just go for one or two of the young guys that have never experienced losing. Mm -hmm. Because it's a very strange situation when you've got guys like Jim Furyk and Phil Mickelson have Awful Ryder Cup sure. records. Don't mean to say they're awful players. Uh, they've party, just they've yeah. just lived in the wrong era right, <laughs> sure. to have a, a winning record. So I think they have different uh, problems. I think when it comes down to it, competitively it'll be great. I think the two captains have a huge amount of respect for each other, which will be great for the match. Uh, I think it'll be played really hard, and they'll have a beer and a cigar at the end of it together. Uh, result, yeah, maybe an American win would be good for the. Radical.
0: What will your week, week be like in the weeks leading up to it?
1: Um, what would, sorry? Me? What would your, yeah, just personally, like,
0: how long will you be? You just yeah,
1: well, my, phew, I think I'll be mood control <laughs> for the week um, on Darren, because I know him so well. You know, you can see when he's overheating and when he's not. Uh, it To me, it's actually not been as busy as I thought it would be. Um, he's had to do quite a lot, but not ridiculous amounts. Uh, he's had to do a lot of PR stuff for the Ryder Cup and he's got a couple more things to do but uh, he's generally really enjoyed it he's got really into it because he's got a lot of a bit of OCD which I think as a captain is very good
0: yeah he's he mentioned that I spoke to him he said the same thing that it's sort of very meticulous when yeah
1: and I think that's really good you know I think uh, he, he was meticulous with the clothing. He's been meticulous with his speeches. He's meticulous with the stats to pick the team, to pick the pairings and whatever. So I think that side of it really helps for him to be a good captain. Um, I think that having watched Sunday and seen Justin and Henrik ride up there, he knows he's got one or two really strong People in the team really strong, mm-hmm. you know. You and you add Sergio to that. You add Lee to that. You've got some. Lee's not in the team yet, but right. but right. I think I think he might be. Sure. And and I think that you know, sort of, he's got some real good, strong stuff. And then he's got some exciting youngsters. And and it might well come down to how good the youngsters are and how good they cope.
0: You know, speaking of young players, I'm curious what you think about this sort of recent uh, development, which is a lot of guys turning pro in the last year or two years, and they're signing what seem to us like big contracts. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you, with the exception of the, the big names you would kind of wait to see how a guy played before signing him. Now it seems like it's preemptive where we, when a guy turns pro like a DeChambeau or a Bo Hostler, they're signing big deals right off the bat. So why is that? And is that from your perspective a good thing or uh, does it put an unwelcome amount of pressure on a player?
1: I think that um, what you find now is there's less surprises. So I think if there's a very good term pro, uh, young amateur turn pro, they become very good pros quite quickly like John Rahm as well. Um i think the deals are not as big as you think they are mm-hmm. unless they perform i think you know i think the the companies are smart enough now to put a a bit of a safety net in uh, certainly in my experience that's sure. the case um and you know with under armor and matt Fitz, they, they've 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 given him a very nice contract but he's earned it you know if he'd have if he'd have still been on the Challenger in europe he wouldn't have been getting that much cash sure. He is now getting proper cash from Under Armour. But, but I think that um, the the way things are worked out now, the good players become really good players. There's not too many good players disappear. Whereas in the past, you had one or two people turn pro and they don't follow through mm-hmm. with, with the potential they had. Is it just
0: because you, there's so much more coverage or so much more knowledge of top amateur players that they you know, you know what you're getting when they turn pro as opposed to a little bit of speculation
1: yeah i think that's that's fair to say that and i think also that one i, I always had a theory about the college system in the states that if you were very good you shouldn't do four years if you were not so good you become very good and then you do the four years and jordan sort of pretty much sure did exactly that and i think one or two more of Done the same thing justin thomas i think did the same uh, not not that many real top players see out the end of the college uh, college sort of term and and i think because of that then they hit the ground running as a pro because they they, they hit it as they're playing really good mm-hmm. and my point was always that if you got to be really good in the college system you actually would always flatten out because the competition was only the same all the time you know, and you only get better by playing with better people and seeing better people. And you know, Jordan probably endorsed what I say that you get out there and suddenly you're playing practice rounds with really good players, sure. getting drawn with really good players in the tournament, and that can only help you.
0: One follow-up to what you said earlier, which I thought was interesting, you said that your guys don't. Switch, jump around equipment contracts. So you're smiling like that's a conscious decision that you make. Why is that, and what is the what's the advantage of it?
1: I think you know. A, I think it's probably easier to change equipment now than it was, say, ten years ago, sure. because of uh, trackmans and mm-hmm. different data that you can come up with. So it's much easier to match what you play with. Um, but but I think that um, there's a lot to be said for loyalty, you know, with a company. And they can build a story and they can build a campaign and, you know, Danny's just signed for five years with Callaway. Well, they can make a plan now, can't they? And it's a strange one to, to sign it for five years because you actually have to be more careful with the contract because in five years' time, I might not be around and the guys that I signed it with might not be around. So, so you only have the contract in place that is there. So you actually have to make sure that's really uh, as it should be. And... Uh, Like I say, with Lee, he's been there 23 years. And it's really odd because you you, you actually see somebody's value go up and then it plateaus and then it comes down again because when you're 43, 44, Mm -hmm. it starts lessening.
0: Let's talk about the European Tour for a moment because it seems to be in a bit of a a period of transition. What are you seeing from the Tour and and do you welcome some of the changes you're seeing?
1: Yeah, I think uh, the appointment of Keith Pelly was, was a really interesting one. and He's had, I think, a year and two weeks in the job, um, got a lot of energy and it needed somebody with a lot of energy because it needed reinvigorating. It was it was idling along, if you like. Um, and we're never going to compete with the PGA Tour because we're never going to have as much cash floating around as they have over here. But we do need to have a viable uh, alternative. And I think one of the things that I was crying out for for five years before the change was... They needed to understand the best weeks on their schedule when the best players would play. Mm-hmm. And Pelly got around all the top players in the first two or three months and said, You know, if, if I do this, will you play there? And, if, and, and you know, when, when Rory missed Wentworth, he knew he was going to play Paris. Well, yeah. that's how it should work. You don't need everybody to play all the time, you need some of them to play some of the time and spread it out. Um, he's got this plan of having eight, seven million dollar tournaments next year. I think he'll probably get there. And I think he's trying to get twelve by the year after. I think that's probably a bit harder to go from eight to twelve. Is probably more difficult than to go from three and four to to eight as it is now. But he'll certainly achieve what he was trying to achieve uh, in the fact that there'll be more dates in Europe where the top players will want to play. Um, interesting. He's he's very. Uh, he makes quick decisions, and he makes a lot of decisions and. He came and had lunch with me about 10 days into the job and it was different because he rung me up and said, can we have lunch? And I said, yeah, sure. Well, I live in Manchester and he lives in London. So I figured it'd be next time I'm in London. He said, no, I'll drive up and see you. Well, that, that I'd never been shown that respect before, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he came up and, you know, they'd told him that if he speaks to me, I'll tell him exactly what I think. It might be right and it might be wrong, but I'll tell him sure. what I think. And I came out of that lunch. We had a three-hour lunch, which was really interesting. And... I, I got out of it, uh, and the guy said, "What's he like? What's he like?" And I said, "Well, he makes like he'll make a lot of decisions." I said, "Out of every ten, he'll get three wrong and seven right." And I said, "But that would be that'd be really good," yeah. and that's exactly what's happened. You know, he's he's made a few errors, and he's made a few great decisions. Uh, one of his errors, in my opinion, was was and I understood it was letting Rory into the money list last year when he only played twelve events. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that hit. Danny Willett because he won the money list, but yeah, you've got to look after your best player. So you know that was a tough one. Sure. Probably got it wrong because number because I don't think he looked at every scenario. Number 111 in the money list lost his tour card. Right.
0: So in, in that instance, he's feeling a lot more than Rory is. Yeah. yeah. You Rory know, not winning the money title would be yeah. is more. De- yeah. That's right. And and you know, so Danny not
1: winning it because Rory played right. was a big deal, but not. You know, whereas you know Seve Benson, I think it was, was 111th, and and that's pretty life threatening. And I think if you have a look, he's probably about 110th right now as well. So, you know, he's he's on the cusp, but he's an he's a very very energetic energetic guy. There's going to be some new things happening in Europe. I think there's going to be some new initiatives. Uh, I don't see many new sponsors, which worries me. It's all right getting more money out of the ones you've got, but he really needs new blood into the game. And it'll be interesting to see if he can bring that in.
0: I've seen a couple of things about experimenting with six-hole events. Are you open to these types of uh, innovations? Most certainly,
1: yeah. I, I tried to get a six-hole match play event off the ground five years ago. Um, and you would have 16 players, and you could do it in the day.
0: Sure.
1: And eight players is an afternoon. And you have a pro-am on the Saturday and you do this on the Sunday. And it's quite a nice way of an exhibition match or whatever. And I personally would have six holes with four or five clubs with a mulligan and music and, and a kid driving the cart. And, you know, just really, really it up.
0: That seems to be like one of the things that when you're operating from a position, I don't, I don't want to say weakness, but not as strong, um, you're forced to be innovative. You see that with the European tour, like even their social media campaigns, they're much more uh, adventurous and and creative than the U.S. tour, which is a little bit more conservative. Yeah. And, and
1: I, I agree. I think uh, I think European Tour's social media is very very good, and I think you're right. We have to be. We have to sort of show that we we've got sort of innovation, uh, and I think he's looking to have this six hole stuff on a Tuesday. At a tournament. So, you know, it works. And and there's, you know, you had this putting thing and whatever. You know, there's lots of things that we need to do. We have this strange game, cricket, Mm -hmm. that we've scaled down from five days to three hours. And I went to a baseball game last night. (laughs) And believe me, 2020 cricket, which is the equivalent, is far more entertaining than than baseball because we would hit more home runs, Mm -hmm. sixes, in in three hours than they did last night. Um, So we need the same sort of thing in golf. We need something that's snappy, that people get into, that's entertainment as opposed to sport.
0: Yeah. Speaking of uh, the Ryder Cup, the other thing that's always been sort of floated is that one of the reasons why the Europeans play so well uh, in the Ryder Cup is because they're playing for their tour. There's a pride in the tour and they want to prove the tour's worthiness that you don't see on the American side. How much of that is a motivating factor?
1: I think it is. I think they do feel so. And, and I think Darren feels that he is representing the European tour and and his job is to represent the European tour. Um, I, ju- I just think that the camaraderie and togetherness of the European tour cannot be matched over
0: here. Chubby Chandler, great stuff. Really appreciate your time.
1: Pleasure. Enjoyed it.
0: Special thanks to Chubby Chandler for joining us on this week's Golf Digest podcast. If you haven't done so already, you should subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Give us a rating if you can. Also, uh, check back next week to see who our guests are.